So if you've got your Bibles, we'll open to John chapter 19 and keep going from there. Last week you got up to verse 26. So I just pray. Thank you, Father, for blessing us with a new day. Thank you, Lord, that you've blessed us so abundantly, Father, and you're going to spend eternity revealing to us just how much you love us and how much you've given us, how much grace you've bestowed upon us. So we just thank you, Lord, for your abundance of grace and your love and your mercy. And uh, we just want to say thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us, especially as we go through the crucifixion now, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So yeah, last week we got up to the point where Jesus was crucified. So he's on the cross, and we got to verse 26. And we started talking last week about Jesus creating a new family, a spiritual family, where God is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to extend this and have a bit of a look at an application of this for our church and our families. And also, before Jesus dies, he says, It is finished. The most powerful and most important words ever spoken. We just jump straight in. So, John chapter 19, verse 25, starting at verse 25, we'll read to the end. It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And another scripture says, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So let's jump back to verse 26. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now remember, Jesus had how many half-brothers? Four. Four half-brothers and sisters. We don't know how many sisters. Jesus bypassed the earthly bloodline, his own brothers and sisters, and he wanted one of his family to look after his mother. And it fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 69 verse 8, which says, I have become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. Because, as we talked about last week, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. 
but John did. John the Apostle did. So our spiritual family, I believe, is much more important and valuable than blood family. And you go, ooh, that's a bit of a scary thing to say. But especially if they are not saved. Now, does this mean that we can neglect our blood families, our physical families? Because Jesus is saying, you know, I want John, because you know, you believe in me, to look after my mother, because she believes in me too. But I just want to show you that's not the case. So providing for and caring for our families is really important. Have a look at this. 1 Timothy 5.8 But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. So very important to follow God's word and look after your family. As God takes care of his own family, so are we to take care of our family. And Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So I see our families as our primary mission field. It's not just our husband and wife, but our relatives as well. And if we don't pray and reach out to our own family, who's going to? It's important that we recognize that we have a responsibility to serve and to be a blessing to our physical families. But at the same time, it's really important to recognize that we're part of a greater family as well, an eternal family. So I want to give you a few reasons for remembering that we belong to a greater family, an eternal family. So the first one is there are deeper relationships or true unity. So when we cultivate friendships and relationships with people of like faith, believers, it's generally deeper and more meaningful than your typical family relationship, especially when the family is not saved. And why? Well, Ephesians tells us. It says, Ephesians 4, chapter 3 and 4, Be eager and strive earnestly to guard and keep the harmony and oneness of and produced by the Spirit in the binding power of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as there is also one hope that belongs to the calling you received. So that's the amplified version. So as Christians, we have another aspect to our relationship, and that is this part which is produced by the spirit, the harmony and oneness of the spirit and produced by the spirit, the binding power of peace. So our families are temporary. The spiritual family is eternal. So I've already spoken to my daughters about this. I said, one day, I'm going to call you sister. (laughs) And they're going to call me brother. Because when we're in heaven together, we're all children of God, with God as our Father. Now the second reason why it's so important to recognize that we are part of a greater family and give out everything, pour out our spirit, soul, body into nurturing those relationships to make it a really high priority, is that we need each other in order to obey what God has called us to do. So let me explain that. It says in Ephesians, there is one body, Christians are part of one body, and we depend upon each other. And Paul says in Romans, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So God has made this new family and each part has a special function. So every part has a role. Every part is important. And if we don't play our part, if we don't get ourselves involved in the church, then the body becomes dysfunctional. The family doesn't function correctly. We have a mission to go out into all the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. This takes a group effort. This is not something one person can do by themselves. We need to look out for each other, support each other, encourage each other in our different roles. And I believe making disciples is the most important thing. Just like we are responsible to raise our own children in our families, physical families, we're also responsible for raising God's children, and that's us. The more mature believers help those who are less mature in their faith to grow up and mature in their faith. And this is why we need our gifts. So Ephesians 4, 11-16 It says, 
And he himself gave some to apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, which part is the most important? Every part. <laughs> well, the head's the most important. The head is Christ. But it's talking here about the effective working by which every part does its share. The church is effective when everybody does their share. Everybody is important. Everybody is necessary. Well, how do we make ourselves available? How do we do our share? Well, we pray. We develop our own relationship with the Lord, and we can give our time. We give our money. We use our possessions, our gifts, and our talents for the glory of God, however God calls us to do that. Now, the third reason why it is so important to recognize that we are a part of this greater family, this eternal family, and do everything we can to nurture those relationships, to make that a priority in our lives, is that God's purpose for the body of Christ is that we love each other as Christ loves us so that the world sees Jesus in us. We are to reflect his glory and his love. And it's a big theme of Jesus in the book of John. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. So how? By our commitment to each other, by our relationships with each other, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. So it's not just the way we treat our blood relatives, our physical families, but also the way we treat other Christians. John 17, 17-23 makes this more clear and expands on this idea. It says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity, that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. Now, notice I've underlined a couple of things there. It says, so that the world will believe that you sent me. It's twice. He's repeating that. What's the purpose of God's love being shared amongst us? It's not just to make us feel happy. It's a witness to the world that Jesus came, died, and rose again. And the effect of that can be seen in us. As humans, our greatest need is to be loved. And the truth is that unconditional love, perfect true love, is only found in a relationship with God. So the biggest draw card that we as Christians have to draw people to Christ is our love one for another. Because then they will know that God sent Jesus to the earth to die for our sins. The world only has a cheap imitation of love. They need to see the real thing. So as Christians, we need to learn to love each other and make that important so i've just got those three things up here on the board so deeper relationships or true unity or we need each other in order to obey what god has called us to do and god's purpose for the body of christ is that we love each other as christ loves us so that the world sees jesus in us we are to reflect his glory and his love so what god has done by dying on the tree is creating a new family tree so if you like family trees, we have a new family tree. It's not based on physical genetics, but based on the new birth, being born again. 
So that was basically for the church, the application for the church. Now I want to the application for families. The cross. How does a cross affect the family? Well, I would say that a family is formed at the cross because that's where true families are forged and held together. Now I got this from Got Questions. I might have said this before when I've been teaching. You know, the divorce rates are about fifty percent, and Christians are about the same as non-Christians. Well, I thought I might check that out. I found this. First of all, the overall divorce rate is not 50%, it's about 30%. And there's a quote here, it says, from gotquestions.org, Partnering with George Barner, researcher Shanti Fieldham, re-examined the data pertaining to the divorce rate among Christians and found that the numbers were based on survey takers who identified as Christian rather than some other religion. Under that broad classification, respondents were as likely as anyone to have been divorced. So that's true. If you call yourself a Christian, but you know, in our society, if you're not a Muslim, then you're a Christian, basically. Some people would call themselves atheists. The Christian category included people who profess a belief system but do not live a committed lifestyle. However, for those who are active in their church, the divorce rate was 27 to 50% lower than for non-churchgoers. So there you go. Makes a difference. Nominal Christians, those who simply call themselves Christians but do not actively engage with the faith, are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. So if you're a Christian and active in your church, you're up to 50% lower divorce rate, so around 15%, say, best case, in the church. If you're not fellowshipping and you're not engaging in your Christian walk then what they call nominal Christians then you're actually more likely maybe 40-50% more than the general population but I want to focus on the the 15% that's in a church of 100 families that's 15 of those families over time will break up that's a lot of families why? and you know divorce in the church was virtually unheard of 50 years ago, or maybe longer than that now, but it's getting more and more common in the church. And this vignette that Jesus gives us here about John and Mary being put together as a mother and son, it shows us a lot, okay? So how does the cross affect our families? Well, or basically, why is God's family tree so important? I'm just going to give you a quote from John Corson. It says, Why is it that you and I will do just about anything to keep our families together? From taking a family vacation to Hawaii to playing Monopoly on Tuesdays or soccer together on Saturdays, yet when it comes to telling a father or mother, a husband or wife, that bonding and binding take place only at the foot of the cross, our response is usually, but I was looking for something a little more practical. So, We want to invest in our families, and people do invest in their families. They do lots of things to try and bring their families together. They do holidays and all that kind of stuff. But the thing we need is Christ. We need to go back to the cross and remember who we are in Him. So basically, I'm a fool if I take my kids to football games, go on family holidays, and read every parenting book available, but I don't take them to the one place where bonding and binding truly takes place. Satan will let you do all kinds of good things if he can keep you away from the cross of Calvary. For it's there alone through prayer and humility where we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And that's where the bonding begins, where family of a different kind. Okay, It's not just about getting along. It's not just about making memories. It's about we're together in Christ. Now, the second way that the cross affects our families is forgiveness flows from the cross. So it's a Calvary when a husband or wife, uh, a brother or sister, son or daughter or friends, we drink the cup and eat the body together. We can no longer foster petty bickering and have unforgiving attitudes toward each other. It's at Calvary where cruelty between brothers and sisters ends, where wounds inflicted upon us by our own family are healed, where forgiveness flows freely. So this is where we can... Uh, find those restored relationships it's at the cross so if your home is a battlefield you can watch Christian TV and listen to Christian music and listen to sermons and Christian radio as much as you want 
It's not going to do much. You need to come back to the cross, go to Calvary together, and purposefully say, let's remember what he's done for us as we eat together off his body. Have you guys done that as a family? Done taking communion as a family? And made a point of remembering what Christ has done for you and why you're together and how you should be forgiving each other because Christ forgave you on the cross. So many choose to take the other route. You'll keep searching and struggling, trying this, trying that, and especially the so-called Christian counseling, which is nothing but psychology rebadged. It's like, you know, the cars. Oh, that looks the same as the other one. Well, it is the same. <laughs> it's just got a different badge on it. So be careful. You go to those so-called Christian counselors, they'll tell you all this stuff, and you're wondering why all the problems get worse. But if you go to the cross and you pray together, then you'll find victory. You'll find forgiveness for the other person. Now, the third way that the cross affects our families is, I call it um, fickleness flees at the cross. Fickleness. What does fickleness mean? Yeah, the, the propensity to, to change your mind. Now, Jesus didn't say, woman, if you're into this, would you consider opening your heart to John and maybe begin a mother-son relationship and just see if it works out? He didn't say it like that, did he? And if it does, John, would you consider perhaps trying to communicate with your heart and talk with Mary? No. <laughs> he just said, with blood flowing freely, Jesus said, this is the way it is. Woman, that's your son. John, there's your mother. No discussion, no debate, no argument. It's a done deal. And with us, what does the Lord say? Husband, that's your wife. Wife, that's your husband. You're married. Divorce is not an option. So this fickleness that we have in today's society to break up and go our own way, it shouldn't be there. And the cross brings us back to that place where we're together in Christ. Christ has united us to be one. You know, God hates some things. One of those things is divorce. And, you know, it's really tough living. You might say, well, it's hard living with her because she's so cold or she doesn't say nice things to me or he doesn't say nice things to me. And If we understood how God feels about divorce, we would make our marriages work, but not by self-effort. We would get on our knees and cry out to God for his help and his intervention and first of all, be willing to allow God to use the circumstances we're in to do their work in us first. That we'd be willing to change, to examine our own hearts and motives, and allow God to reveal who we are, the sin that's in our own hearts. Now, there's many who have been divorced who have been deserted. And your husband or wife has just walked out. Divorce was the last thing you desired. Now, what's God's attitude? God looks upon you with love. Okay, and as you continue to trust him, he will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, Joel 2.25. But if you willingly and rebelliously walk out on your family, the repercussions and consequences will follow you, and you'll suffer practical consequences of that kind of um, lifestyle. So that's why our loving father says, I hate divorce, and that's Malachi 2.16. Uh, quite any man who stands at the foot of the cross, any woman who bows in front of the tree, will find fickleness replaced with fortitude and capriciousness with commitment as they are reminded of the one who gave his life for them. So if Christ is committed to us, then we should be committed to each other. Now, the fourth way the cross affects our families and us personally is true motives are revealed at the cross. Do you remember Salome? Salome was part of the, the group who followed the Lord. And at one stage in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, she began to worship Jesus. But the scripture says she also asked something from him, meaning she had a request for him. So she goes, to worship the Lord, but with the intent of asking for something. And we can make that same mistake. Oh, I love you, Lord. And oh, by the way, <laughs> I have this request. How easily we fall into the subtle error of worshipping the Lord that we might, you know, soften him up and slip in our petition, our request. You know, the opposite of that is the wise men. The wise men travelled a great distance bringing gold, frankincense and myrrh to a 
toddler who at that point could do nothing for them. They didn't come for manipulation, they came for adoration. They didn't come to get something from him, they came to give something to him. They didn't come for what he could do, they came for who he was. So, not so Salome, she worshipped him and then asked, could one of my sons be at your right and the other at your left when you come into your kingdom? You know, let them be the head honchos. The highest authorities amongst all the disciples, let them be the, the most powerful ones. And I can imagine Jesus maybe shaking his head going, oh, you've got no idea what you're asking. And you know what? At the cross, as we're looking at it today, she's standing there and there's a guy on the right-hand side and there's a guy on the left-hand side and she goes, ah, (laughs) I think I understand why Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You know what, sometimes we can be saying or praying things like, he needs to change, she needs to change, or we need more money to relieve the stress on our marriage. If my children would just respect me and do as they're told, then my marriage or family would be great. Really? Well, just remember that the Lord always does what is best. He is the one who puts us in these tough situations because that's how he works to change me first, to become more like him. Even if you don't see it immediately, you look back and see it eventually. So just the um, overall thing about the cross and what it tells us about God's heart for us is that if he died for you then, don't you know that he loves you now? If he paid that price for you then, can't you trust him today? You know he's going to do only what's best for you and for your family. And the cross of Calvary proves it, and experience will verify if you're willing to trust him. So let's move on to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now this is where Jesus also cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, basically reminding people of Psalm 22. He also says to the thief on the cross, it's not in the book of John, it's in the other Gospels, today you will be with me in paradise, talking to the thief who believed. Now what did that do? Well, it set the precedent by salvation by faith alone. What could that thief on the cross do for salvation? How many works could that thief do to earn his salvation? (laughs) Nothing. So... On the cross, we see salvation by faith alone. On the cross, we see Jesus saying to John and to Mary, Behold your mother, behold your son, and establishing this new family. And we have redemption, sanctification, justification, propitiation. All these things are being settled on the cross. And in the middle of all this powerful stuff going on, Jesus says, I thirst. And that reminds us of his humanity. His, in his humanity, he was weak, even though he was so strong as being God. So as you go through the life of Jesus, you see his deity, but you also see his humanity. Now, in Mark fifteen twenty three, they offered him like this drug at the start, a pain-numbing drink at the start of his ordeal at the start of the crucifixion, but he didn't accept that. He wanted to go through this without being affected by other substances. And now he gets a drink of this diluted wine, most likely, to wet his lips and enable him to speak so he can make one final announcement with a great cry. And it says in verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, do you know what the Latin word crux means? You know, what is the crux of the matter? The crux means cross in Latin. So, when you say, what is the crux of the matter? You're saying, what is the cross of the matter? So, it is finished. He's cried out. The crux of the matter is that the work is done. I've got another quote here, or two quotes about this. It's exciting. So it is finished. The Greek 
phrase denotes such power that if Jesus' hands hadn't been nailed down, it would have been uttered with a clenched fist raised in the air. It was a phrase that an artist would use when he put the last stroke on his paper, a writer when he put the last period in his book. It was a statement a businessman would make when a transaction was final, the pronouncement given concerning a lamb that passed inspection. So it gives you an idea what telestai means. It is finished. And another quote, Jesus' final word, telestai, it is finished, is the cry of a winner. Jesus had finished the eternal purpose of the cross. It stands today as a finished work, the foundation of all Christian peace and faith, paying in full the debt we righteously owe to God. So that's really the most important part. Our sin debt was paid. Every other religion or cult is based on what? Yes, works. It's what it teaches us what we must do to earn our salvation. Only true New Testament Christianity gives us this belief system which is based not on what remains to be done, what we need to do, but what he's already done. We can't do anything to get right with God or closer to God except to realize that it's already been done. As we continue in our walk, we continue to say, I'm coming to you, Father, expecting your blessing and confident of your grace, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but only because of what your son accomplished when he cried, it is finished. So it's all about grace. We can't earn any of God's favor. It can't be good and say, oh God, you should bless me now because I'm in good. No, it doesn't work like that. God wants to bless us because of Jesus, because we're in Jesus. Now, I just want to look at what happened kind of behind the scenes as this is happening. So at some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, this awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved. And he bore in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. And as horrible as all the physical suffering of Jesus was, this spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place, was what Jesus really dreaded about the cross. This was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath, his vengeance, that he trembled at drinking. And I've got a verse here, it's in um, Luke twenty-two forty-one to 44 It says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. So why was Jesus so under duress? It's because Jesus became an enemy of God. That relationship was broken and the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He drank the cup so we wouldn't have to. He absorbed God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. He was judged so we wouldn't have to experience the judgment for our own sin. Isaiah 53, 3-5 shows us this very clearly. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Christ died in our place. Now it also says he bowed his head. And this speaks of a peaceful act, like laying down on a pillow to sleep. This is not hanging his head in defeat. Oh, now, you know, I'm defeated. No. Christ is a victor. He's not defeated. So he's not giving up in defeat. It's a peaceful act. And he gave up his spirit. This is amazing. No one took Jesus' life from him. Unlike any of us, he had the ability to give up his spirit. 
So where does it say that? It says that in John chapter 10. John 10, 17 to 18. It says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again, or take it up again. Augustine said, he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. Pretty amazing, eh? So, therefore, it seems we have a contradiction, because we read in John twelve thirty-one to 34, Now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, that means crucified, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Interesting. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up, crucified, die by crucifixion? Who is the Son of Man? So these verses say that Jesus will die, not just suffer, as a result of crucifixion. Also, Acts three thirteen to 15 The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he's determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So, here, the responsibility of Jesus' death was placed on those who rejected him. Actually, we're all responsible because we all sinned. Jesus died for sinners. That's why he came. So, the answer to the question, did Jesus, the man, die because he gave up his spirit or because he was crucified? And the answer is yes. <laughs> all right, And it's like the sovereignty of God versus the free choice of man question, which is true. Both are true. And you can think about the type of Isaac in Genesis 22 when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. He willingly gave up his life as a sacrifice, but he was also sacrificed. Jesus allowed himself, his life, to be taken. And God's sovereign plan was revealed back in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we have this war going on between Satan and the seed, the Messiah. And it continues in Luke. Jesus says in Luke 22.53, this is when he's on trial. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. So Satan was given the authority and permission by God to mastermind his vicious and murderous scheme to destroy the Messiah, fulfilling Genesis 3.15 to bruise his heel. But Satan didn't understand, through his arrogance and pride, most likely, that as he bruised Jesus' heel, he would be crushed with a fatal head blow. And from the Father's perspective, the bruising of Jesus was actually taking the punishment for the sins of all mankind. And Satan, as a result, is now defeated. He would lose his authority and power over us and eventually the whole world. Now we come to verse 31, and this is interesting. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be done away with. In other words, They're on the hill, in plain view of everybody. We don't want these bodies up there for Passover. Would you just get rid of them? A lot of compassion there, right? (laughs) Just kill them quickly. We don't want to look at Jesus. We just killed. Put him to death through false trial and all that kind of stuff. Now, the day of his death, was it two nights in the time or was it three? So I'm going to read a quote from Chuck Smith that um, deals with this. So the day of his death. Many people have been confused concerning the day of the death of Jesus. We know it was the day before the Sabbath because the Jews wanted to get him off the cross before the Sabbath. So traditionally people have believed Jesus died on Friday afternoon. But he had said he would be dead for three days and three nights. And we know he rose on Sunday morning. So that would only be two nights. Several explanations have been offered, but this passage here gives us a possible clue. John tells us that the Sabbath was a high day. 
The day after Passover was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was always considered a high Sabbath. No matter what day of the week it fell on, it was a special Sabbath day. So I believe that Jesus was actually crucified on a Thursday, on the day of Passover, with the next day, Friday, being the high Sabbath, the following day being the normal Saturday Sabbath, and the third day being Easter Sunday, the day he rose from the dead. This makes three days and three nights. It also explains why his followers couldn't come to the tomb to anoint his body until three days later, as they couldn't do that on either Sabbath. We still celebrate the traditional Good Friday, but technically I believe it should be Good Thursday. So that's um, a really good, short, concise explanation of that topic. I'm not going to go into any more than that. You can look it up yourself. Uh, Verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. The normal thing to do was to break the legs, but scripture says not a bone would be broken. It's not normal to pierce the person, but that's what happened to Jesus. And so, again, we see God is in complete control. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Now, when I was at a previous employer, both the principal and the deputy believed this, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he was resuscitated. He was kind of passed out on the cross and he was resuscitated. Well, I'm just going to talk about that for a bit. So is it possible that Jesus simply faded on the cross and revived while he was in the tomb? Here's a a quote from the Journal of the American Medical Society, March 21, 1986. Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only his right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Pretty cool, eh? So, it doesn't take much faith to believe that Jesus died. John says in the next verses, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. (laughs) So, eyewitness accounts. So basically what happens is, they believe that Jesus died of a ruptured or broken heart, literally a broken heart. What happens is the blood seeps out of the heart when it's ruptured and goes into the pericardial cavity, which is a sac that surrounds the heart. And so you've got this clear pericardial fluid and the blood. And so when it was speared, the blood and the fluid, the clear fluid, the water, would come out. And so this proves that Jesus' heart was literally pierced and he was truly physically dead. I mean, I don't know how many people can keep living without a heart working. If your heart's got a spear gone through it, I don't think it's going to keep working. Okay, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Now, these guys, shh, don't tell them. Don't tell them we believe in Jesus. Now they're getting really bold. And the body of Jesus would have just gone in a garbage heap. If no one had gone to claim his body, then it would have just gone into a garbage heap. That's what the, the custom was. The request of Joseph and Nicodemus would destroy them. Nicodemus, we know that he lost everything. He lost his family, his finances, he lost his wife. He lost his position as spiritual leader of Israel. And he became the laughingstock of the Jewish community. So what motivated Nicodemus to stand up and be counted for Jesus? Well, I would say, and especially since I didn't understand about the resurrection yet, that you've got to think about that. They didn't know he was going to resurrect. They just knew that 
he was God. They believed in him. So I would say that the way to motivate people to serve Christ is not to make them feel guilty, not to put pressure on them, not to try and manipulate their emotions, but simply allow them, like Nicodemus and Joseph, to see what Jesus did for them on the cross. And then from a grateful heart, they will be willing to give up all for Jesus. So if you look at the cross, what is it? It's Jesus giving everything up for me. And once I start to understand that, I become willing to give everything up for him. So prior to the cross, Nicodemus was like, I'm, you know, my position in society, my family, my money, all this is just too important. I'm not going to be a public disciple. But when he saw what Jesus did for him, that changed everything. And suddenly he was willing to give all that up, and he did. Now, this is where the law is really important. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said that he who is forgiven little loves little, but he who is forgiven a lot loves a lot, or is a lot more grateful. That's my paraphrase. And so he gives this story about two servants, one who owed a little money and one who owed a lot of money. Both were forgiven of the debts, and then he asked this very important question. So the question is, and it's found in Luke seven forty-one to 48 I'll just read it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Important question. And Simon the Pharisee answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So it's not until we see ourselves in our true condition, which is outside of Christ, dirty, rotten, corrupt, rebellious lawbreakers, that we really start to appreciate what God has done for us. In other words, the more I understand how disgusting and vile and evil and corrupted my sinful human nature is, basically how great my sin debt was, then the more I will love God and be thankful for what he has done for me. And the opposite is self-righteousness, where I have a high view of myself, like Simon the Pharisee. I'm very religious, but my heart is as cold as ice, and I'm deceived by the pride of my heart, my deceitful heart. So that's the purpose of the law. And just to finish, 40 to 42. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in stripes of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, so that they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So a rich man like Joseph of Arimathea had his tomb, and it was carved into the rock. It was in a garden near the place of crucifixion. It had a small entrance and uh, one or more compartments where you could put bodies and lay them out after being mummified with spices and ointments and linen straps, etc. And what they would do is leave these bodies in the tomb for a few years and then they would gather the remains, put them in a small box and called an ossuary, O-S-S-U-A-R-Y. The ossuary remained in the tomb with the remains of other family members so you could reuse the, the tomb. And they put a big, heavy, circular stone across it so that no one could disturb the remains. And it's very expensive to make a tomb like this. So it's a sacrifice that Joseph of Arimathea is giving his up. But it's all right, because Jesus would only be there for a few days anyway. <laughs> so here's another prophecy to finish with. Um, Joseph and Mary, they're in Bethlehem, and the wise men come. What was one of the gifts they brought? Myrrh. Yeah, they brought myrrh. Speaking of his death. And here, another Joseph brings myrrh to Jesus and anoints him with myrrh. 
Finally, Leviticus 16, it is prescribed that on one day each year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to trade his beautiful priestly robes for the simple linen robes worn by his fellow priest. And what did the high priest do in the Day of Atonement? Well, he went through the veil into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the lid or the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside was the Ten Commandments. Now, if he was defiled, he would stay in that place as a dead man and well, they'd have to be pulled out with a rope. But if he wasn't defiled, he would walk out into the courtyard of the temple to the jubilant cries of the people who knew they were forgiven for another year. Whew, one more year. All right. Well, here is our great high priest, Jesus Christ, inside the tomb. Would he emerge? Did the sacrifice work? Are we free? Only if he came out among the people, as he had prophesied, could there be true celebration and could we know that our sins are forgiven, not just for one year, but forever. Well, I'm not going to tell the answer. You have to wait till next week. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for this awesome um, passage, Lord. Help us to be truly grateful for your grace, Lord. Lord, the, the awesome sacrifice you did for us. So much, Lord, and all because you loved us. Lord, as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, Lord, they changed lives, Lord, and they saw what you'd done for them. They saw how you took their punishment, Lord, paid the price that they owed. Help us to realize just how much you've done for us so there'd be nothing that's too hard for us to do for you. Change us and make us more grateful. Help us to understand how evil and vile our sinful nature is and what you saved us from. Lord, there's nothing good about us. And you just chose to love us because you wanted to love us. Lord, we didn't deserve it. Thank you for the undeserved love that you've given us, the grace that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.